Hello and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, and this week on my mini-series, I'm starting a new mini-series. Uh, it's called The Many Flavors of Fascism, uh, which is not supposed to sound as inviting as I guess it sounds. Um, the idea here is that this mini-series will be on the different types, styles, and postures of fascism um, in order to demystify some of the you know taxonomies and like names of different types of fascism that people talk about when, you know, they're discussing contemporary or historical fascist movements. Now, you got to be careful here. Uh, this kind of, like, categorization is a little bit complicated. You know, it's not quite how movements really work on the ground, uh, and we want to try to avoid giving any sort of, you know, established rubric, you know, like, if you do X, Y, and Z, then you are a X type of fascist, right? That's not exactly how things work. Uh, these are more sort of, like, working models and ways to approach movements to help you understand them both past and present. Uh, there aren't exactly clear-cut examples here. However, I'm going to do my best to lay out these examples and categories and explain them so that you can use them. Now, speaking of the lack of clear-cut examples, though, I'm going to start out with one that is uh, playing off on this pun. I'm talking about skinheads. Now, skinheads are a particularly complicated subset of fascists because they began in the zeitgeist as having nothing to do with fascism or the right wing at all. So skinheads began as a sort of working class white male subculture in the United Kingdom, primarily in the 1960s. The idea of the subculture was that it was a reaction to other fashion and lifestyle trends in the 1960s, a less ostentatious look than the ones that other young men were adopting at the time. Uh, so the skinhead's look was utilitarian. It was practical. Uh, the premise was that skinheads were working-class white men primarily. Uh, they were people who were working with their hands in factories or out in the world uh, doing manufacturing or other physical labor. Uh, so their clothing and style reflected this work environment. Uh, they had suspenders over workers' pants like slacks, you know, actually big baggy trousers, or working jeans, collared shirts with suspenders, uh, big working boots like Doc Martens or army surplus boots, and also the shaved heads that gave the fashion its name. Uh, the reason supposedly behind the shaving the head was a, to contrast themselves with other young men who were growing out their hair at the time, and also to avoid their hair getting caught in their faces or goggles or, worst of all, in machinery. Uh, skinheads as a subculture was organized around music and concerts, primarily reggae, rocksteady, and ska, uh, but also R&B and soul music. Now, the first three of these, ska, rocksteady, and reggae music, were identified in the United Kingdom in this time, and very correctly, with the arrival of Jamaican immigrants to the United Kingdom in the wake of decolonization after World War II. This meant that these forms of music were primarily practiced by, produced by, and profited from by black musicians. Uh, but skinheads, like several other large groups of people in the United Kingdom, came to love this music and attended these concerts and uh, participated in that culture. And this was the music that skinheads were associated with. This music that, outside of that subculture, uh, was coded as being music for and by black people. Um, 
listening to these artists was a sign of working class integration. Uh, there were millions of subvariants of skinheads of this type in the 1960s. So, you know, there's like a million different aesthetic and fashion trends here. Now, in the 1960s, this was, as I said, primarily an aesthetic trend. Uh, it was not explicitly political, except in that it was working class. You know, it, it, this was not a subculture that was really oriented toward or available to upper class people. In the 1970s, however, we get the variations on skinhead practice and fashion and music tastes that are the reason that it is today the word synonymous with fascism and the right wing. So, like I said, fashions sort of come and go, and the first wave of this uh, skinhead fashion waned in the 1960s, but it came back in the 1970s alongside the rise of punk music and the punk subculture and fashion world. Uh, this genre of the skinhead uh, and uh, its association with punk music was extremely culturally influential. Uh, the punk skinhead revival was pretty central to punk culture in the United Kingdom and was also arguably responsible for the popularization of ACAB, uh, the anti-police slogan. This being extremely popularized by a punk skinhead band called the Foreskins. Uh, as the name of that band implies, this genre of the, you know, skinhead aesthetic and posture toward the world was extremely uh, crass, lackadaisical, um, angry, youthful, rebellious, right? And, you know, in that way, it's not unlike many other youth subcultures. There was an important divergence at around this time, though, in the 1970s. Uh, some people who were adopting this aesthetic again, you know, reviving this aesthetic from about 10 years ago, took a very serious turn towards supporting policies and politics of racial integration. Uh, these people uh, wore checkerboard patterns to symbolize the idea of white and black people working together. Uh, that is the origin of the popularization of that pattern in the English-speaking world. Other people, however, who had adopted uh, skinhead fashion and skinhead aesthetics took an entirely different direction. And these are the skinheads that are the racist ones. Uh, rather than continuing to listen to black music, uh, music produced by black people, they started to listen instead to music that was oriented towards young, disaffected, angry, violent white men. And this music increasingly took on an openly fascistic, neo-Nazi racist tone, and they became explicitly associated with racism. And that is where the association of skinheads with racism comes from. Uh, specifically, the kind of fascism that skinheads are associated with is neo-Nazism, street violence, um, you know, the kind of fascist that you see depicted in the movie like, you know, American History X, for example. In the United Kingdom, this also became associated with and was utilized, was exploited by existing neo-Nazi and fascist organizations. Uh, one in particular is the National Front. Other white supremacist political movements used these, you know, this, this like effervescent uprising of youthful white supremacism in order to bolster their ranks. And this is why skinhead is synonymous with racist today in the English-speaking world. 
this genre of skinhead is also deeply connected to the rise of football hooliganism, uh, which is a form of sports-associated street gang violence, uh, primarily in the United Kingdom, deeply associated with white male fans of English football teams, that is soccer teams, um, and their heavy drinking and extreme violence in the street, primarily, or, you know, originally, supposedly, against the people who are supporters of opposing teams, but also people whom they consider to be um, undesirable members of their society, namely, primarily, immigrants, people of color. After the 1970s, this aesthetic posture and political, you know, ideology that went along with it, internationalized and further radicalized. By the 1970s and 80s, skinhead culture is firmly cemented as a hallmark of racism for most people in the Western world, as skinhead culture and appearance and its association with white supremacism and with neo-Nazism uh, spreads not, you know, not only throughout the United Kingdom, but also Germany, Russia, and the United States. And this is, you know, the image that most people in the United States have of a skinhead today, is, you know, somebody who listens to uh, bands that consist of other white men yelling, uh, probably punk, or possibly some form of extremely loud metal, uh, possibly death metal that has a white supremacist tone. Uh, the fact that like all of the people and things in this person's life are part of this white supremacist subculture. Um, we now associate precisely this, this aesthetic that I said before came from, you know, uh, like trying to be a working-class utilitarian aesthetic, we associate it now with violence. You know, uh, these working-class boots, uh, you know, have steel toes in them not to protect the wearer's feet, but in order to participate in street violence. The skinhead today is overwhelmingly a neo-Nazi in its politics. Uh, it participates in, like I said, massive amounts of street violence, uh, but it is also typically anti-Semitic, anti-Black, anti-queer, anti-women, anti-communist. Uh, however, unlike other forms of fascism, it is also just generally anti-authoritarian. Uh, so they hate cops also. They hate the state. They generally don't like the military. They think that conservatives, you know, like mainstream conservatives, are liberals, essentially, you know, um, that they think that they're weak or that they are playing into the hands of some bigger mastermind, you know, engaging in some sort of anti-Semitic conspiracy about it. This is a youthful, tear it all down, you know, fuck everything kind of politics. Uh, and it is ripe to inspire and um, foment the kind of violence that we now associate directly and pretty much exclusively with the label skinhead. Uh, this also means that skinhead culture and aesthetic and politics is deeply associated with a series, well, like all of the major white supremacist prison gangs, especially in the United States. Now, I would be remiss to not inform you that there are still today many skinheads, like as in people who adopt this aesthetic, who are not racist and many of whom are actually very explicitly anti-racist. Um, there are a lot of people who adopt this aesthetic because they like the music or because they, you know, like the throwback culture and aesthetic of it. Um, many of them actually participate in anti-racist street violence, um, engaging in fights with racist skinheads. Now, this is where we're left. You know, this complicated uh, turn 
in which a subculture that was originally pretty much explicitly anti-racist, which was explicitly about people enjoying the fruits of racial integration and immigration, uh, has turned essentially entirely on its head and is now associated not just internally, but throughout the Western world with white supremacism, with exclusionary racial and immigration politics, uh, with violence uh, against not just immigrants, but also against people who are political opponents, but also just like essentially random violence. And this is what uh, the skinhead aesthetic generally signifies in the United States and throughout the world today. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please leave a review on whatever it is you're going to listen to this on. If you really enjoyed the podcast, check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 minutes of fascism. That's 15 minutes of fascism, all one word. You can also reach me on Gmail at 15 minutes of fascism at gmail.com and on Twitter at hist of the right. That's H-I-S-T of the right. Uh, and also at fascism 15. Like I said, this is the start of a new mini-series called The Mini Flavors of Fascism. Next week, I am going to talk about clerico-fascism, a form of fascism that is informed by uh, religious ideology and primarily, at least in all of its historical examples, by uh, Catholicism. All right, I'll talk to you next week.